Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Happy Mother's Day to you. Good to see you. Welcome to the mothers. Uh, because it's Mother's Day, we're actually going to be preaching on hell. And uh, I'm totally joking. You can't do that on Mother's Day, okay? You can on other weeks, but if you do that on Mother's Day, you'll get fired. Although, I think it would be kind of hilarious. It'd be like, we have some flowers for the new mothers and... The smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. I mean, that would be hilarious, but we're not going to do that. We're going to continue in Romans. This is actually a very encouraging passage about God's love, Uh, but I want to open in a a word of prayer before we get into this. We will be in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. If you've got your Bible, you'll want to flip there uh, as we pray. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that you are high and you are uh, lifted up, uh, and we confess that uh, you are greater than us, that you are infinite, that you are everywhere, that you are all-powerful, and we just uh, repent for uh, not seeing you that way, seeing you as kind of just this uh, slightly stronger person than us, and we confess that you are not a man, that you are God, you are uh, eternal and infinite and all-powerful, and we thank you for sending Christ, who though he is the second person of the Trinity, uh, became a man while remaining God uh, for our salvation, and so we just ask that this would be a uh, time that is uh, pleasing to you. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. While you're turning there, I want to start with a little uh, illustration. So, growing up in school, there were certain subjects that I liked and certain subjects that I didn't like, okay? Not just lunch and recess, everybody likes those, but there were certain school subjects that I thought, hey, this is interesting, and other ones that I just despised, okay? So, I liked science, I loved doing experiments, I thought that was fun. I liked math, at least when I was a little kid. When they started confusing the letters with the numbers, I didn't like it anymore, but I liked it as a little kid. And I loved history. I loved knowing why things are the way they are and how they got to be there. But the one subject that I could not stand and to this day don't like is English, all right? I figured I already taught good. I don't need English, right? But uh, you have to take English. Now, I need to say some things in critique of English, but I want to say this first. If you like English, Maybe you did your degree in English. Maybe you're an English teacher. This is not directed against you. It's directed against my English teachers, none of which who are in here, okay? So there were two things that I did not like about the English classes that I took. The first one was that for whatever reason, the English teachers that I got, not only in high school, but then even in college and grad school, professors that I had in literature and these kind of things, they had a tendency to assume that because they were good at English, they also were experts in other areas, okay? Having a degree in English does not qualify you to speak on politics. It does not qualify you to speak on theology. It does not qualify you to speak on uh, philosophy. It doesn't qualify you to do those things, okay? So stay in your lane. If you are a chiropractor, you don't get to do brain surgery on somebody just because you're in the medical field, okay? So that was the first problem I had. Now, the second problem that I had was the bigger one, and it's that it felt too subjective. That was even a subjective statement itself. But the English class felt too subjective. So I would get a paperback that I did a good job on. Notice that I just ended a sentence in a preposition, which means I should have taken more English. That I did a good job on, on which I did a good job. And the teacher would have written a comment like this. You didn't make your argument long enough. And I'm like, that's funny. The critique you just gave me was an argument that you didn't make long enough. Who gets to be right here? Right? Or they'd say something like, you didn't put enough emotion into this paragraph. And I'm like, that's strange. You didn't put enough emotion into this critique of my paragraph. It was too subjective. So I don't know why it was the case. This might have not been the case for you, but for whatever reason, I just got teachers that were very subjective. So we would be reading a Mark Twain poem, and the teacher would say, what does this mean to you? Which, by the way, I never care what it means to you. I care what it means to Mark Twain, okay? 
But she would say, what does this mean to you? And some kid who's like eating glue would say, I think Mark Twain's talking about playing Xbox. And the teacher would be like, yes, that's good and right and true. And I'm like, what is happening? I know for a fact Mark Twain's not writing about Xbox because it didn't exist yet. But the teacher was like, all opinions are valid. And I'm like, I have an opinion that not all opinions are valid. Is that one valid too? You just said all opinions were valid. Zach, go to detention. That was English for me, okay? So I didn't like that. And so when I got older and went off to college, I said, you know what, I'm going to take, take classes in logic, in rhetoric, in philosophy. I want to learn to think. I never want this to happen again. I hate this mushy subjectivity. Now, when you're studying logic and these kind of things, there are all these different ways you can make arguments, and they're typically given Latin names, an argumentum ad absurdum or an ad hominem or a post hoc ergo propter hoc. They've got all these famous, fancy Latin names. But we're going to talk about one today that the Apostle Paul uses a lot throughout this text, and it's called an a fortiori. Okay, remember that, that term, a fortiori. In Latin, that simply means to the stronger, to the stronger, okay? Here's what an a fortiori argument is. If I can prove something that's really difficult to prove, then by logical necessity, I've proved the easier thing to prove. Let me give you an example. If I can lift 200 pounds... Can I, by default, lift 100 pounds? Do I have to prove that? Is it like if I lift 200 pounds, my buddy's like, I bet had you taken some weight off before you tried to do that, you wouldn't have gotten it off the ground. Is he going to say that? No, because 100 is included in 200. In fact, you can't get to 200 without first going through 100. You with me? If someone can run two miles, can they, by default, run one mile? It's not as though you run two miles and your buddy's like, I bet had you just tried to run one mile, you would have fallen flat on your face. Nobody says that. That's an a fortiori. If the, the harder thing, the more difficult thing is true, then surely the easier thing is true as well. You with me? In playing basketball with my dad, he used to give an a fortiori. He would say, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know. Right? Which means if he's forgotten more than I'll ever know, then what he knows about basketball has to be way more than I'll ever know. Right? That's an a fortiori. So this is, a, this is kind of a, a literary device. It's also used in rhetoric and these kind of things to prove a point. So you'll hear this in, in politics. You'll hear this in sociology. Uh, for example, it's illegal to kill a baby eagle's egg, or it's illegal to kill a baby eagle, an eagle's egg, but it's legal to abort a human, right? You see how you could use that as an a fortiori. Why can you kill this dependent unborn eagle, but you can't kill this dependent unborn Human. I like eagles, don't get me wrong, but humans are more important. That's an all fortiori. So these kind of things are used all the time in our language. They're used in the media. They're used all over. But the Apostle Paul in this text is going to use a ton of them, okay? So as we go through this text, I kind of want you to keep a tally, make a little mark on how many times the Apostle Paul uses this kind of argument, that Christ dies not for the good but for the ungodly, that if why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we've been justified by his blood, surely we'll be saved from the wrath of God. These are all all fortiori's, and there are a ton of them. So as we look through this text, try to keep that in mind. You ready? Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, let me say a few things about this sentence before we uh, unpack it. First of all, when it says here that we're weak, this is the Greek word asthenon, it's typically used in Greek literature to denote a physical weakness. It's used in Greek literature of people who are crippled, it's used in Greek literature of people who are sick, uh, and these kind of things. But here it takes a moral sense. It's meaning that we are weak morally, we are weak spiritually. A better translation of the word weak there would be the word helpless. If you want to write the word helpless right by that word in your Bible, that would be great. For why we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What does that phrase at the right time mean? What is that modifying? 
It's modifying the word still. Okay? It's modifying the word still. What it's saying is, is that Christ died for the ungodly just at the very time when we were weak. Yes, it's true that Christ dies for uh, mankind at the right time in redemptive history, but in this specific text, what Paul is saying is right at the time we needed it the most. Not when we were doing better, but while we were still struggling, while we were still in our sin, that's when Christ died for us. I'll give you a little example. Uh, I am allergic to just about everything, okay? It's awful. I can't live in a bubble because it's weird, but I'm allergic to just about everything. And so I went to the allergist, and she said, quote, you are allergic to everything except dust and mold. I'm like, everything? She's like, everything. I'm like, great. How much does that cost me to just know that? There's no cure, by the way, for allergies. Your allergies are just where your body attacks itself because it thinks the things you're breathing in are bad, but they're not really that bad, okay? So allergies are stupid. They're part of the fall. But what they do to check you for allergies is they take this huge plate of needles dipped in poison, basically, and then they stick it on your back just to see what's going to happen right? So you lay there, they stick it on your back, it hurts, they come back a few minutes later, and then they just kind of make fun of you. They're like, oh man, your back looks gross. And you're like, thank you? What what kind of doctor is this, right? So they they do that, they poke that little thing on my back, they come back, you know, 15 minutes later, and I look like a turtle. My back is like out as a shell. They're like, you are allergic to everything. I'm like, what do we do? And they're like, more needles. And so then you get allergy shots, okay? And here's what an allergy shot is. If you're allergic to tree, They take a little bit of tree and turn it into a serum, and then they inject you with a little bit of tree, and your body eventually just starts to accept it. But you have to do it for like 30 years or something, okay? So I go in for my first appointment, and they inject me with uh, the shots uh, for the allergies, and they say, let us know if you have an allergic reaction. They don't tell me what that's going to look like, right? So I just will be dead, and then they'll know. So they inject me, and they say, let us know if you have an allergic reaction. And uh, about 20 minutes later, my arm is swollen up and I'm having trouble breathing. And I think to myself, because I'm a guy and guys are stupid, I think to myself, I'm just going to tough it out. I'm just going to tough out this allergic reaction. Like it's if you're running and you just decide to run another mile. I'm just going to keep my throat from swelling closed, right? So they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, feel great. And so I left. Got to work, called my buddy and said, I'm going to die. I need you to take me to the doctor. So they took me back to the doctor. They gave me one of those EpiPens stabbed that into my leg, and then I felt better. Now, the reason I tell you that is because that's the idea here of at the right time. Not when I didn't need it, not when I was doing fine, but right before my throat closed, right when I was not doing well and I was sucking for air, when I most needed this uh, EpiPen or whatever it was, that's when I got it. The idea here is this. Christ doesn't die for those who are good, for those who have got it, for those who are crushing it. He dies for those that need it when they need it. He dies for those that need it when they need it, okay? Now, I want to read verse 6 again, because there's something here that's just really simple and really profound, okay? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. Now, let me, let me tell you why this is powerful. There are some, some texts in the Bible that are just really hard to understand. There are other ones that are easy to understand, but they're hard to just believe. They're very simple and very profound. I remember being in a New Testament class one time, and the professor just said something that was so simple, just theology 101, super basic, but it always stuck with me because it was just so profound. All he said was this. He simply said, the reason we have to obey God is because we're creatures. Just so simple. We know that. That's obvious. But in that moment, it was so powerful. Why can't I do what I want to do? Why do I have to obey God? Why do I have to do it uh, God's way? Why can't I do it the way that I want to do it? Why can't I haggle? Why can't? And the reason is simply because I'm not eternal. We're made out of the dirt. We're creatures. You and God are not on the same sphere. 
And so it was a simple thing that was really powerful. Now, the Apostle Paul says something here that is extremely simple and extremely powerful. It's this, ready? That Christ doesn't die for those who are crushing it spiritually. He doesn't die for those who are good. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one that Christ dies for the ungodly. Okay? Let me give you something. This is, this is the central thing I want you to get from this lesson this morning. Ready? If God loved you when you were lost and ungodly, surely he loves you now as a Christian, though you may struggle with your faith, though you may struggle to walk in obedience. It's simple, but it's profound. God doesn't choose people the way we choose people. We choose people because there's something good within them. There's something we like within them. We're friends with certain people because they're funny, or we're friends with them because they're nice to us, or we click, or whatever it is. That's how we choose people. When I met my wife, I met her at a friend's birthday party, and I went to that party to meet women, all right? I'm unashamed, all right? I was just about to graduate from college, and I'm like, I'm going to get married. So I went to this party. Now, I didn't go to the party thinking, I hope I meet a girl with a terrible personality who's super unattractive, who laughs like Fran Drescher from The Nanny, and who's just a pain to be around. I didn't think that. I wanted somebody who had good qualities. So as soon as Katie walked through the door with all her glory, her dark hair, I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? So I had to put out the vibe. I had a bottle of water. I poured it all over my head. I didn't do that. So I went up and I said hi, and I shook her hand, and we were married 11 months later, okay? Because there's good qualities in Katie. I said, I want to find someone who's beautiful. I want to find someone who loves Christ. I want to find somebody who's patient. I want to find someone who has all these good qualities. That's how I choose. That's not how God chooses. God doesn't choose the prettiest girl at the ball. God doesn't choose the best and the brightest. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. If you feel broken and hurting, like you just can't seem to do it good enough, that's who Christ is for. That's who he chooses, right? He doesn't do it like we do. We choose based on something good within the person. That's also why we like babies, because they're just so adorable, right? They're just fat, those big cheeks, these little chipmunk people, and they're just adorable, and that's why we love them. Most babies. Some babies, they're just babies. But most, most babies are adorable. But there's something within them that we like. This text is saying Christ died for his enemies, listen, while we were still his enemies. While we were still his enemies. Verses 7 through 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A few things I want you to note about this text. First of all, I want you to note the Trinitarian reference here. Back in verse 5, it mentioned the Holy Spirit. Here it mentions the Father and the Son. This salvation is a Trinitarian work of the one God, all right? And so I want you to see that salvation is from Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I want you to see this. Also look in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. This is not saying that there are people that in and of themselves, apart from Christ, are righteous or good. That's not the point. It's saying from our vantage point, okay? In Jewish thinking 2,000 years ago, a righteous person was different than a good person. A righteous person was somebody that you didn't really know but they were a decent citizen. They were a decent human being, right? They pay their taxes when they're mowing their lawn and you wave, they wave back. That's a decent person. That's a righteous person. A good person though, and we have this phrase used of good person in other places in Greek literature, it's used of someone who's a benefactor. It's used of somebody who has benefited you, somebody that you know, okay? So here's kind of what the text is saying. Would I die, Zach, for just some random guy off the street who was a nice guy? Probably not, okay? Maybe. If he came up to me and said, I need you to take my place because I'm going to die, I would say, you need to learn some social skills. And two, probably not, okay? Maybe, but probably not. 
But would I die, though, for somebody that I know and that I love? Would I die for my wife? Yes. Would I die for my kids? Yes. Would I die for a friend? Yes. But here's what's crazy. Nobody dies for the person they despise. Am I going to die for Hitler? No. Am I going to die for Kim Jong-un? No. Am I going to die for Osama bin Laden? No. Am I going to die for Tim Hollis? No way. Right? You like how I put him in those, that class of people? To my knowledge, Tim has killed no people, all right? To my knowledge, okay? We typically don't die for our enemies. There's this great line from uh, the show The Office where Michael Scott, the office manager, there's this guy he really hates named Toby. And he said, if I had a gun with two bullets and I was in a room with the devil, Hitler, and Toby, I would shoot Toby twice, right? It's a great line. We don't die for our enemies. What this text is saying is something very, 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 very powerful. Christ dies for those who hate him why we still hate him. That God sends Christ to die for his enemies. Not for those that are already crushing it, not for those that are already doing well, not for those who are righteous. This is powerful stuff. If you understand what this text is saying, it will free you from running on this treadmill of always thinking that the days you're doing well, God loves you, and the days you're not doing well, God doesn't love you. Because this text is saying this, it's an a fortiori. If God loved you when you were lost, when you hated him, Surely he loves you now, no matter how much you're struggling as a Christian. It's powerful. It's powerful, okay? Now I want you to see another thing. Look again at verse 8. It says that there's a demonstration going on here. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen to what I'm about to say. God's love for you is not proved or proven. I don't know because of the English stuff again. It's not proved or proven based upon your feelings, but based upon the objective work of Christ on the cross. God's love for you is objective, not subjective. It's math, it's not English. That's what this text is saying. That God puts his money where his mouth is on the cross. How do you know God loves you on the days when you don't feel like he loves you? Because he's proved it in Christ. That's what this text is saying. It's powerful. I gave an example uh, once here. I want to I give a, the same example because I think it's really helpful. So there's a, a New Testament theologian I like. His name is D.A. Carson, and he's brilliant, all right? Has a PhD from Cambridge. He reads 500 books a year. There are only 365 days in a year. When you have to ask somebody, how many books did you read today? They're a smart person, okay? And he was on a mission trip, and a guy came up to him and said, Dr. Carson, I've always struggled to feel God's love. I'm a Christian, but I just never really feel like God loves me. And he said, until one day, I had a dream. And in that dream, my mom was giving birth to me, and the doctor that was there to catch me was none other than Christ, okay? And he said, since I had that dream, I haven't struggled with God's love. Now, if somebody came up to you and said, I always struggle with God's love, but I had a dream that God gave me, and now I don't struggle with God's love, what would you tell them? I think most of us would say, man, that's great. Hang on to that dream. I'm so glad that that happened. But D.A. Carson knows his Bible better than that. And so he said this. He said, what then happens the next time you doubt God's love? You're going to need another dream. How do you know that dream was from God? How do you know that wasn't you? How do you know you just didn't have some bad Mexican food and have a weird dream? You don't know for certain. You think it's God, but you're not sure. You don't have a certainty. So what you've done now is you've anchored yourself to every time where you feel like God doesn't love you, you have to run back to an experience. He said, what you have to do biblically is you run back to the cross. That's what's objectively true. That's what you know is from God. Your feelings will come and go. On the days where you're doing well and you're reading your Bible or you're evangelizing, you're going to feel like God loves you more. 
And on the days where you're sinning, you're looking at something you shouldn't look at, or you're snapping at people, or you're walking in pride, you're going to feel like God doesn't love you. This text frees you from all of that because it's saying God has proved his love to you. He loves you, and it's objective as evidenced by the cross. If you can get that God loves you at your worst, surely he loves you now. Surely he loves you now. But Zach, I don't feel his love. It doesn't matter. Just like it doesn't matter if you don't feel like two plus two is four. It's true, and your feelings are liars, and so you have to preach the gospel to your feelings. You have to preach the gospel to your feelings. God loves, God's love for you is objective, not subjective. Now, let me give you another thing with this. We at Parkway are really big on theology. We love teaching theology. We love doing line-by-line preaching through the Bible. We love getting into heady, deep stuff. Now, the reason we do that is not to just make everybody ivory tower nerds. That's not our goal. We believe that your correct knowledge of God is linked to how much you love God and how much you realize he loves you. We believe that your correct knowledge of God affects the rest of your life. There are a million churches in McKinney today, and they're getting together, and you know what they're talking about? You. Five ways to be happy, though married. Four ways to have a better life. A lot of them are preaching about moms. We're preaching about Jesus, okay? And what you need to know is that knowing God correctly helps, is the most practical thing in the world. You don't have to give people practicality. If they see God rightly, that'll naturally affect everything else they do. So let me give you some theology when it comes to the love of God, okay? The reason that God's love for you doesn't change is because he's unchanging. The reason that God's love for you stays the same is because he doesn't need anything from you. Our love for other people is always conditional. I like to think it's not unconditional, but it's conditional. I'll give you an example. I like to think my love for Katie is unconditional, but if she cheats on me every day, guess what? My love starts to change because I need things like to not be cheated on, okay? I like to think my love for my kids is unconditional, but if my son grows up and tries to murder me every day, my love will change. Why? Because I need stuff like to not be murdered. When it comes to God, God possesses an attribute that you and I don't possess, which is aseity, of himselfness. The eternal God needs nothing from you. He doesn't need you for anything. He loves you. You're important, but he does not need you. This is why he is the only being in the world that is just free to love you because he doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't get tired. God is impassable. You don't give him good days and bad days. You feel love. God is love. That's different. That's different, right? I love my kids, but because I'm human, I'm limited. I love them, but I just am so tired all the time, and you never get a break as a parent. I will try to go to the bathroom, and my son will put his fingers under the door. I'm hungry, and I'm like, no! That's not the case with God. He doesn't get tired. He possesses aseity. He possesses impassibility. He doesn't need you. He loves you, but he doesn't need you for anything, and because of that, he's free to just love you for him, not based upon how you're doing or not doing. I've said this before, that many of our wrong thinking about God comes from thinking of the Father as like just a big man. He's not. The Bible says that. He's everywhere. He's infinite. He is God. He is not a man. He does not evaluate the things we evaluate. He will not betray you. His love for you will not change like people's love will. Okay? Let me show you a verse. 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says this. I think we're going to throw it on the screen too. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Look at this next line. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that takes away his wrath towards us for our sins, okay, for our sins. Now, 
Before we get into verse 9, I've got to get on a soapbox, and I need to rant a little bit, okay? Let me ask you this question, because this is essential to this text. What is mankind's primary problem? Can we all agree that the world is somehow messed up and broken? Even if you're not a Christian in here, you just came in off the street, we can all agree there's something in the world that's broken. Just watch the news, get on social media, and what everybody is doing is they're talking past each other because nobody's stopping and asking this question. This is a very essential, very important question. What is mankind's primary problem, and what is mankind's primary solution? So people online will talk about the same issue, but they haven't stopped to ask that that presuppositional question. What is mankind's primary problem? And what is mankind's primary solution? How you answer that question will determine everything that you do. It will determine what you think about. It will determine what you think is valuable. It'll determine how you act. It'll determine how you vote. It will determine all those kind of things. What is the answer to this question? What is mankind's primary problem? Because throughout world history, people have given a bunch of different answers, okay? The philosopher Plato said that mankind's biggest problem was ignorance, that mankind was basically good. The problem is that we just didn't have enough knowledge. And so if we could create a republic led by a philosopher king who had that wisdom and had that training and had that education, then you could create a utopian society. So for Plato, man's biggest problem is ignorance and salvation is education. Is that mankind's greatest problem? Is mankind's greatest problem educational? What was the most educated nation in the world in 1941? It was Nazi Germany. It was Nazi Germany. So that's one solution that's been offered. Another one is that mankind's greatest problem is a lack of evolutionary development. This would be Darwin's idea that the reason we have sicknesses and diseases and these kind of things is that we haven't evolved enough to eventually get rid of those things, okay? So maybe our problem is lack of evolutionary development, and maybe the solution is physical. Maybe it's not educational. Maybe it's physical. The problem with that scheme, though, is that it means you have to die, that mankind's greatest actual problem isn't dealt with, okay? So is it educational? Is it physical? Maybe it's economic, This would be Karl Marx, that mankind's greatest problem is economic inequality. The biggest problem is that you have the haves and the have-nots, okay? You have the bourgeoisie, which are the factory owners, and they own what's being made, and you have the proletariat who are being used and abused. And if we could get rid of uh, private property and we could have a redistribution of wealth, then there wouldn't be any problems. How did that work for, I don't know, North Korea, the USSR? China, etc. Well, Zach, it wasn't applied correctly. It can't be applied correctly because it's a false worldview. Is mankind's greatest problem education? Is it physical? Is it economic? Maybe it's uh, sexual. This is the idea of uh, Sigmund Freud, that there is a really, there's a self behind ourself. There's who we really are that we suppress. We specifically suppress our sexual desires, but through psychoanalysis, we can find out who we really are. The problem with that is that we live in the most sexually expressive generation ever, and yet their rates of suicide are up, and the rates of people on medication are up, and people are not doing well. Maybe the problem is uh, gender-related. This is the idea of philosophers, feminist philosophers like Betty Friedan or Simone de Beauvoir. The problem is that you have distinctions between men and women, which cause women to be seen in a different light. So is it educational? Is it physical? Is it economic? Is it gender-related? Is it sexual? Maybe it's political. This is the view of Thomas Jefferson. The biggest problem with humanity is tyrannical governments. So if you didn't have tyrannical governments, that would be the solution. Maybe it's political. Maybe it's social. This is the view of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau basically said that in a state of nature, mankind was basically good, and what corrupts us is society. As we start getting all of our buildings and our politics and our education, you kids with your organic Wi-Fi, that's what causes all the problems, okay? He didn't say organic Wi-Fi. That's not a thing, okay? 
That's Rousseau. He would say that the problem is social. Maybe the problem is existential. Maybe it's that you can put constraints on yourself when you should just pursue your dreams. This is the view of Jean-Paul Sartre, often mispronounced Sartre. And what he would say is this, if you see a beautiful waitress and you want to sleep with her, go sleep with her. And if you say, well, I can't because I'm married, he would say, don't let these constraints put upon you by society hold you down. Experience life on your own terms. Maybe the problem is psychological. Maybe the problem is psychological. There's a guy named Nathaniel Brandon who's kind of seen as the uh, father of the self-esteem movement. That the problem is that we don't have a high enough view of ourselves. That if we could just think more positively about ourselves and if we could be encouraged and we wouldn't run into people that challenge us and make us feel bad and hurt our feelings, then everything would be okay. I would contend, though, that your biggest problem is not that you think, it, not, that you think not highly enough of yourself. I think that mankind's biggest problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. Okay? Now, with all those things in mind, which one of those is right, which is wrong, what do we do? Let's look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. That's mankind's greatest problem. Yes, those other things are problems. Don't get me wrong. Listen, racism is sin. Sexism is sin. Having bad governments is awful. Please hear me say that. But mankind's greatest problem is not economic. It's not educational. It's not political. It's spiritual. Mankind's greatest problem is that we have rebelled against our Creator and we fall under the wrath of a righteous God. Mankind's greatest problem is God, and our greatest solution is God. Do you see? All those other things flow from that. Until you've answered that question, you can't answer the other ones. That Christ has come to save us not from economic inequality or whatever. He's come to save us from the wrath of God. That's the idea from this text. Who is saved according to this text? Us. Who does the saving? Jesus. It says, quote, saved by him. How does he save? Quote, by his blood through atonement. And notice in this text, by the way, that salvation is already and not yet. You're saved, but you're also being saved. It's both, okay? Now, let's read it again. There's something else really powerful this text says. Another a fortiori, if you will. By the way, we've already had like three or four, so if you've only written down one, you've missed it. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If you've already been justified, there is hope that you no longer have to fear the wrath of God, okay? Let's, let's, let's take a little, a little trip together in our minds, okay? You don't have to close your eyes or do anything weird, but imagine a world. This is just a hypothetical. Imagine a world with me. Imagine a world in which there is an all-powerful being, and this all-powerful being loves you, cares for you, has adopted you, Though you go through difficult things in life, this being has promised never to leave or forsake you. And then when you die, you don't stay dead. This being raises you up, and then there's eternal life and joy. Just imagine how great that world would be. You ready? If you're a Christian, that's the real world for you. You have a terrible day, you sin, you struggle, you wake up the next morning, worst case scenario for you is eternal life. That's worst case scenario. If you are a believer, this world, this present world, is as close to hell as you will ever come. I guess conversely, if you're not a believer, this present world is as close to heaven as you'll ever come. Okay? But there's this idea that if we've been justified by His blood, we're protected from God's wrath. It's already been absorbed by Christ. Okay? There's none left for us. God has no more hatred and wrath towards you if you are a Christian. You are loved. Okay? Do we believe here at Parkway in a literal hell for literal, conscious, eternal torment for those that don't know Christ? We do believe that. You see, I did get hell into a Mother's Day sermon. There you go. 
But if you're a Christian, it doesn't exist for you. Your greatest fear in Christ is not true. If we've been justified from his blood, surely there's no more wrath for us. Surely we are protected from the wrath of God. Okay? Look at verse, verses 11 through, I'm sorry, 10 through 11, and then we'll be done. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Another a fortiori. More than that, another a fortiori. For, fortiori. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay? This text is going to say several things. First of all, we're not merely justified. Justified is the legal term. It means you go from being uh, guilty to being seen as innocent. We're not merely justified. We're reconciled. Reconciliation is a personal term. It's not that the judge just forgives you. The judge also adopts you, and the judge takes your punishment. It's stronger than just you're forgiven, but God keeps you at arm's length. You're reconciled to God. This is something that's amazing about the gospel, okay? The God we serve is not like the God of other religions, okay? In some religions, God is so far off, he's like Plato's view of God. He's just kind of the form of forms. He's just this abstract infinity, and you can't have a relationship with him. In other religions, like if you think of Greek mythology from thousands of years ago, the gods are kind of just like super powerful people. They get confused. They seduce one another. They're kind of stupid. Neither one of those is right. The God of Christianity is way different than you, infinitely different than you. He's super far off, yet in Christ, he becomes close. Our God is both imminent and that he's close and transcendent. The infinite Trinitarian, all-powerful God of the universe who controls everything by his might has decided to have a relationship with fallible, broken, sinful creatures. And that is crazy. It's crazy to think that kind of love. Why would God love us? If I create a pot out of clay and that pot rebels against me and tries to kill me, I destroy that pot. I don't send my son to die for the pot so that that pot can be put up on my shelf, right? But that's what God does in Christ. Let me read you a passage that talks about God's imminence and transcendence and how he comes close to those who are hurting. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Notice God's transcendence, his otherness. Who inhabits eternity. You live in a house, God lives in eternity. Those are different, okay? Those are very different. Whose name is holy, whose name is set apart, whose name is other, whose name is different, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Now look at this next part. Look at his eminence. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The almighty God of the universe in Christ has come near to us to bring us salvation, though we have rebelled against him. And we've received not only justification, but reconciliation. Now let's look again at these texts. Look again at verses 10 through 11. I want to do a little exegesis and then say a few more things. According to this text, when were we reconciled? It's when we were God's enemies. Not when we were doing well, but when we were God's enemies. What reconciled us to God, according to this text? The answer is the death of Christ. Will God complete the salvation in us? This text says yes. How will he do that? Through the resurrection and intercession of Jesus. I'll talk about that in a second. To what end? Look at the end of verse, or look at verse 11 again. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We go from being God's enemies to being forgiven, to being adopted, to being full-blown worshipers. God's end in salvation is his glory. It is his worship. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism would say, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Notice that that becomes the goal. That becomes the end. That becomes the telos according to verse 11. Okay? 
I want to show you a great quote from an early church leader named Chrysostom, who says this about this, uh, what God has done in Christ. He says this, and so the fact of his saving us, and saving us too when we were in such plight, and doing it by means of his son, and not merely by his son, but by his blood, weaves for us endless crowns to glory in. Endless crowns to glory in. Now, I want to end by looking at the end of verse 10. Look back at verse 10. It says something fascinating. For if why we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that's Jesus' death on a cross as atonement for us. Now look at this next phrase. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what it means. You ready? You're not just saved by Jesus' death on the cross. You're saved by his resurrection and his continual mediating between you and God. Okay? It's not that just Christ saved you. It's that he is saving you. That there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's still doing this. You, a dead Messiah does nothing for you. He must be raised. He must be vindicated, showing that he is God's son. Sin has been paid for, and he continues interceding for you. You haven't just been saved by Christ. You're being saved by Christ, even today. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Tim had this in the song that we just sang. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I've got two, two kids. I have a son named Judah, and I have uh, our newest one is a daughter. Her name is Isla, okay? And guys, whatever level of smushiness you think she is, it's more than that. She's very, she's very pasty. You can basically see through her. Sometimes I'll just take her and I'll put up fingers behind her back to see if Katie can see them, okay? Super pasty. She's like this little ghost baby. She's so chunky. She's like, I said it before, it's like if you filled a big sock full of gravy, that's Isla. And you hold her and she's smushy. Now, here's the thing. As soon as she was born, they do a bunch of tests, right, at the hospital. They do a bunch of tests. And one of the things that they test for is cystic fibrosis, okay, CF, cystic fibrosis. We actually used to have a lady in our congregation that had uh, cystic fibrosis. And uh, what they do is they check all these babies for that, and they get a lot of false positives, okay? Meaning they tell you your kid might have cystic fibrosis, and then they do a more advanced test to make sure whether or not your kid does or doesn't do that. Now, I've asked, why do you do that test if it just freaks a bunch of parents out? And the answer is it's because it's better to scare some parents whose kids don't have it than it is to not catch it early, than it is to not catch it early. So when our daughter was born... We got the test, and it came back as a positive, that she was positive for cystic fibrosis, okay? Now, just to, to encourage you and give you some good news, she didn't have it. It was a false positive. We're super thankful for that. But in those moments, when you're told that your daughter has this terminal illness where there is no ultimate cure, and that you will, if she has this, outlive your daughter, that I would put my daughter in the ground, for that week or so while you're waiting for that second test, it's difficult. It's difficult. So I remember getting a phone call from my wife in tears saying, our daughter might have CF, the rest of our lives are going to be spent in the hospital, she's going to die before us, all these terrible things. And I was sitting there with the guys, and Jeff encouraged me, the other guys prayed for me, and these kind of things. And I remember going home, and I remember holding Isla, and in that moment, there was no, how dare you? There was no, why, do you, why can't you be healthy? In that moment, there was just an overwhelming amount, amount of compassion for her. I love you, my little girl, though you're broken. Though you may be broken, though you may be sick, if we need to spend all of our money and all of our time in the hospital, I love you. We're going to do it. Because my love for Isla is not based on Isla, it's based on me. As her dad, I've just decided to love her. Okay? What this text is saying 
is that when Christ considers our wretched estate, because as the God-man, specifically in his humanity, he has felt the full weight of temptation, that when we are struggling, he is able to say to us, I know what that's like. I love you. I know it's hard. I love you. I know you're hurting. I love you. Have you been, had someone betray you? You've been stabbed in the back? Jesus knows what that's like. He's been betrayed with a kiss. Have you had somebody who falsely accused you? Jesus knows what that's like because of the Pharisees. Have you, had some, have you been poor and struggled with money? Jesus knows what that's like because he has no place to lay his head. Have you had people that don't like you, that talk bad about you, that you've gone through weaknesses and sorrows? Do you struggle with anxiety and depression? Jesus is a man of sorrows. Okay? What this text is saying is that Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can encourage us when we're hurting. That's what he does in his role as high priest. He's a sympathetic high priest. You don't have to clean up yourself and then come to Christ. You come to Christ dirty, and he says, I know it's hard. I know you're hurting. I love you, and I forgive you. Let's pray as those helping serve communion bring it forward. Father, I thank you for Christ and for sending him to die uh, on our behalf. We thank you for the spirit that you've given us, the third person of the Trinity who uh, cleanses us from sin, convicts us of sin, guides us in our day-to-day life. I thank you that he is the deposit uh, that you will continue saving us, that you uh, never put a down payment on a house that you don't intend to buy, to say it that way. We thank you for this text. I pray for anybody in here who just ever wrestles with your love, who thinks that maybe some days you love them, some days you're mad at them, some days you don't love them, some days you regret saving them. Some days they feel like uh, they're kind of God's problem child. I pray for those people that they might know that you love them, not based on how they feel, but because you've proved it. That if you loved them at their worst, if you loved them when they hated you, if you loved them when they were lost, surely you love them now. Would you help us believe in your love more? It's in Christ's name. Amen.